0: Welcome to MQL.fm, the marketing operations podcast. Joining me in this episode is Elliot Ross, founder of Action Rocket and Taxi for Email. Hey Elliot, thank you for joining me. So you are the CEO of an email agency called Action Rocket. You're the CEO of an email platform called Taxi. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so the kind of story I guess came out of the two companies. So years ago I worked in email at different ESPs and different brands and agencies and things like that and I went freelance in 2012 and after about a year of being freelance what happened is I ended up taking on too much work basically and needed to hire some people. Good problem to have. Yeah yeah totally right. So what happened is I hired a few people that I knew and that I'd worked with in the past and things like that and then that kind of turned into Action rocket. so that is now like 15 people an agency that does design and build and strategy for email and also other bits of com. so increasingly things like push and stuff like that oh cool yeah and then taxi came out of the needs of action rocket so quite early on we ended up with we were basically doing work for people and, and what would happen is we would give them the html and one of two things would happen they'd either say look We've got an email template now, and we need to make email every week. So they'd either try and do it themselves, and the challenge there is, you know, marketers are great, but one of the things that not necessarily is in their wheelhouse is doing HTML. And even marketers doing HTML, even if they're good at it, they should probably be doing more marketing things anyway. So there's a bit of a disconnect there. Or they would come to us and say, "Hey, can you update the HTML?" And that's not the greatest use of designer time, right? Because A developer costs quite a lot of money and you don't want them just changing the text around and things like that in the HTML. So we ended up building Taxi as a way to to really kind of get marketers to be able to do their job and change content, but also in a way that designers and developers could build them a world to live in. So it's a lot more than, you know, obviously there's different editing tools and ways to make email out there. The way that Taxi kind of differentiates, I suppose, is... There's a lot more, I guess, dialogue between the designer. So the designer can make a template and then say, hey, this is how it should be edited and also how it shouldn't. So you can do things like, this has to be changed. This is a ipsum text and it has to be changed before you can export it, things like that. So you've got really tight control over how marketers change the HTML, I suppose.
0: So I guess that's pretty interesting because my experience of working in email teams and marketing teams in general is just, just that... Mm. The email people are not necessarily marketing people. They can be, but they're typically interested in development. They're more interested in, in understanding how to render something in Outlook rather than understanding yeah. how to put together a good campaign. And so providing this tool allows the more develop marketers to focus on the pure code side of things while letting the more strategic, tactical kind of marketers send out great email without worrying about how it's going to render in Outlook or Gmail or whatever else.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and one of the things that we found, you hear quotes along the way and things, and a couple of things that are interesting. One is that I sat down quite early on with the department store and they said that they live eight hours at a time and they're basically just doing the day-to-day like they, they, they're marketers and they want to do this big picture stuff, but they can't because they spend all day, every day on execution and the other thing that's interesting is I was speaking with someone a while ago and they said that the the email team is three people, but it's also 200 people. So you have this wide range of stakeholders, but also people that you can pull in. So one thing that's kind of interesting is you, you move out of this space of having three or four people who just do email and everything has to go through them. And they either become a sort of a gatekeeper or an unwitting bottleneck or, you know, and it's important because they have those skills, but also just getting all that throughput of work becomes a challenge and they end up working late and it it becomes difficult. Whereas building a world for other people to exist in, those people can become the kind of gatekeepers that they can pull other people in, but in a kind of controlled way.
0: That's a good way to look at it because I've been in teams where I've unwillingly just been the bottleneck, right? So as an email developer, someone turns around and says, we need this sent now. And the reality of email is you can't just do that things changed less so now than they used to. So I remember when I first started, Gmail decided to turn all black links blue. Um, Oh yeah, you remember that. (laughs) And like the way that that was fixed is just by going with instead of black, you just go with a very dark gray. Um, Yeah. Which is just idiotic, right? But (laughs) the only way that people worked it out was by sharing online through Twitter, through blogs and stuff. But if someone was working in an environment where they needed to turn around an email at that time, like instantly, well, suddenly there's this big bottleneck that's just happened because Gmail has changed something and
1: no one knows what's going on or how to fix it. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and you end up with this world where, you know, like we've all, if you've been in email long enough, you get dragged into Black Friday and things like that, right? And we've all worked weekends trying to, trying to get all of this stuff done just because there's so much value hanging on email that the business needs to get it all out. But we're the you know, one or two people in the business who know how to do it. So you end up with this kind of, yeah, it, it basically means having to pull an all-nighter and work out how to do all these things. And that's not perfect, right? So being able to have the skills, but also facilitate other people to do what they need is a really interesting proposition. I think that's it's interesting seeing how teams change they have that
0: kind of power. Yeah, and I guess related to that, there's also the view of, well, if the email people are kind of s- are the people who use the ESP, typically mm. you won't have anyone else in the ESP, and they're yeah, the people yeah. who are looking to integrate personalization and all of this tracking and data stuff that enables email to really perform well, um, mm. which other people in the business either aren't aware of or just don't know how to do or just don't know that it's even possible. Uh, Yeah. In that way, they're like gatekeepers of all this technology that enables like real bottom line revenue generation.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and the thing that's interesting there is I was having a conversation a while ago with someone about like what does the CMO actually want to know about email? And it's super interesting because if you're not careful, they become interested in things like open rates. Yeah. And obviously you know if you spend five minutes looking at a channel then that's the obvious thing you'd look at right and CMOs are very busy people but you know we know as people who work in email the open rate it can be a good indicator for things it can be an indicator of things have gone drastically wrong but it's it's a bit of a blunt tool and there's there's lots of ways you can read it you know in in a way that isn't right so what I think is more valuable for a marketer is actually to spend time getting their head around all those stats and also pulling them out to other people and saying, right, so now I'm going to sit down with the CMO and say, here's the things you actually need to know about email and here's what we're doing. And here's the stats that I've had the time to generate and all this kind of stuff. And then you get to pull those people along for the journey as well. And then they understand, oh, actually what we should be looking at is whatever click to open ratio or, you know, but you have the time to educate them.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, from your agency experience, what are those metrics? Mm. Typically?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really depends on different companies right so like an e-commerce brand the they love open rates like and obviously conversion is the biggest biggest number for a a e-commerce company because that's basically we put x amount of money in uh, money and effort and sent an email and we got x amount of money out right and there's all sorts of things about conversion yeah do you track the first click do you you know if, if if you send an email to someone and then five steps later you know they read your email go and think about it wander around a bit look at some competitors then think yep that's the product for me i'm going to search for it and click through is that a search sale or an email sale because the email's done the heavy lifting but yeah search is what they click through last
0: there's that concept um, of the i guess it's called the halo effect yes which is yeah exactly what you're describing
1: yeah exactly and ultimately There's all sorts of nonsense when people come up with stats and things, but there is some kind of stat around like it takes 10 to 15 touch points to actually get people to make a decision, right? So those 15 could be email, but they're more likely to be walking past a shop and seeing your brand and then seeing some tweets and then seeing an advert on the back of a bus. And then, you know, all this kind of stuff, it all adds up. but
0: uh, Yeah, attribution online is such a shit show. Um, Yeah, it's (laughs) It's chaos. (laughs) It's, um, I guess everyone just defaults to last click
1: cause it's easiest. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, it's not necessarily what you can track. The challenge is understanding the reliability of what you've tracked. You know, like if you, if you track last click, then that's great, but just be aware of, of its limitations yeah. and don't say, right, well, search was 99% of all of our clicks, so let's put all the money on search because it, <laughs> chances are that's not going to, not going to work out long term. I guess that's one thing that marketers
0: often do and i don't want to say wrong but it's they look at the numbers they have mm. and often those numbers are not the right numbers to be looking at either because they just don't track the right stuff or they just don't know how to track the right stuff
1: yeah, um, totally.
0: particularly with email right you might open rate is a really common example people look at open rate because it's a really easy metric to to look at it's one that yeah. one has available every esp makes it as if it's a big deal and so everyone focuses on that and it's not necessarily a good indicator that your campaign is performing
1: yeah totally and i think that's the the kind of catch 22 that we have right is that the stat is there and there is a quote is it einstein or someone like not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted something like that anyway maybe it's Winston Churchill that's what people say for (laughs) but um, yeah (laughs) exactly but you know the point there is that ultimately what we want to track is engagement right you want to understand whether the message has gone in and whether people liked it but unfortunately brains aren't computers you can't download the data from someone and say did this is, is this message in their files somewhere right so unfortunately we we're stuck with you know measuring behavior and measuring behaviour has its flaws so we can take it as an indicator you know if you send an email and and your open rate is zero the chances are your email's gone wrong like so it's it's useful for that kind of thing as a blunt instrument but saying we made the call to action button red and the open rate went up by three percent probably completely unrelated it's not worth making any decisions based on that
0: i remember i ran a test this must have been like nine or ten years ago where I title-cased the subject line versus just, like,
1: right, yeah. not
0: title-casing. And yeah. the title-cased one had, like, a 0.1% higher open rate. Wow, look at what I've done. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> So wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all learn this kind of stuff, right? And yeah. I think it's interesting with platforms because it is an easy bit of technology to to make and sell, right? Yeah. So it's it's a given that they do it, but also sometimes... It, yeah it can be over eggs in people's minds
0: yeah um so what do you allow tracking of metrics in taxi or is there any kind of functionality there to, mm-hmm. around data or that's like yeah of
1: thing? so we don't do we don't do analytics in terms of we don't we're not an analytics platform yeah you you know we won't give you stats or anything like that but what we can do is we can facilitate you setting them up so for example if you're doing litmus tracking you can set up the code and let us pull it over to taxi and put that in your email. But also one thing that I'm really excited about is and anyone who's worked in email, you'll have got, we call it like copy and paste elbow, like basically adding UTM strings to things. Yeah. Like if you make an email, you're going to put loads of links in and then you need to track where people have come from, right? So people land on your website, you end up putting these things called UTM strings. If you've got Google analytics and you put these on the end of your URL. Um, and then when someone clicks through to the website, your website sees that and goes right these people have clicked through from the email and you put these parameters in your in your strings. And if if you think of the average email, there's about 50 links in there maybe, you know, on an e-commerce email. And it's absolutely the kind of thing that we've all done manually, right? Copy and pasted, stuck it all in. Oh yeah.
0: And and done wrong and like actually forgot to update a few and
1: yeah. Exactly. And you know, if you do anything fifty times like that, you you get one of them wrong, right? And then you have to check them all and all this kind of stuff. So in taxi we have the ability to say, right, here's all your links. On this link, do you want to add something specific for this one call to action? Do you want to change the parameter across all of the links by changing one value? Do you want to do something weird and wonderful with your Google or all the other tools with your setup for for parameters that get put on the end of links? So that basically means we can make sure that marketers have got the control they need to say, right, these links, I'm happy with all of these having the same campaign ID or whatever actually, but this link, I want to change, put the UTM string to something else. So we can let them change whatever they need at whatever level, or we can completely automate it and say, just put today's date on the end and hope for the best. And, you know, don't worry about link tracking. It will just happen. And obviously different brands have different things and they want to do different, you know, different stuff for analytics. But yeah, the thing that's really exciting though is we can just make sure all that happens in a way that people don't get wrong, right? Because yeah. yeah, as I said, you do anything 50 times, you get it wrong, especially if you do it then multiple languages, multiple regions, all of that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I guess email yeah. QA is like its own beast, right? So yeah, it's
1: a, it's a huge problem. And one one thing I'm interested in there is like not to plug Taxi too much, but one of, <laughs> one of our interests is is like systematically removing the opportunity for an error to happen. Yeah. So and that's a good example, right? Like we can make it so that you can add your UTM strings in a way that you just don't get it wrong to begin with. Whereas catching mistakes. Is useful, of course, but it's better to not make them in the first place. Yeah. So I'm keen to to find ways to stop things going wrong because then that reduces the need to catch them, and then ultimately that saves you time. But also, it it reduces the uh, the chance of an error going out, right?
0: Yeah. So you mentioned with Action Rocket, you're starting to do, Mm. I guess, more of like a CRM marketing thing. So looking at yes, yeah. yeah. Is that also something you're looking to do in Taxi or is that for now just an Action Rocket thing?
1: Yeah, so with with Action Rocket, what tends to happen is we go in speaking about email with people and they have some kind of email needs, you know, and, and we either build them some templates or we do some consultancy around how they can do better email. But then what happens is increasingly the people who make email either work with or are the people who responsible for these other channels especially emerging ones like push and things like that yeah because they're new channels and you don't really say right now here's my push marketing department and that's completely different (laughs) to my email department you know it's all broadly crm and increasingly social as well like we have a client where the social team and the email team work really closely together and it's really interesting seeing content be generated for both channels and how actually email with content that has been thought about in a social context is actually really interesting like Putting little memes in and, and little short yeah. video clips and things like that, you know, but expecting people to, to consume your email as if it's social content is, is quite an interesting way to think about it. Um, I guess
0: that kind of goes back to what email used to be, which was just that yeah. one like communication between friends, family, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so Action Market does a, a lot of, of that kind of work and we, it tends to be as the relationship grows with the customer or a the client, then they say, you know, so we're thinking about doing this with social. Can you help us do that? And, you know, it kind of goes from there. We had one one customer once, I think that they're still with us, but we made a GIF for an email and then they said, oh yeah, the people who, the people on the TV channel really like that GIF. Can you give us the files so we can make it into, put it on the TV? It's like, it's it's a 50, you know, 50 pixel GIF or whatever. <laughs> like it's not going on the TV. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So in, in terms of taxi, I don't know, like taxi, we're really interested in that process of how people make email and, and making it like super efficient but also making sure there's as as little margin for error as possible and helping people scale out and things like that we do do things that work with other platforms and channels but it's more about an integration so it might be that you have a place where you make all your content and then we can pull your content in and make the emails from it that kind of thing or if you're making all your push notifications you could make that the content interact with the content in taxi and kind of connect to other platforms that you use to make it Um, If that makes sense. Yeah, so with
0: Action Rocket, you've been doing it for, how long did you say?
1: Oh, a long time. I guess 2012, I think the company was registered in 2011, and I was kind of like, you know, in terms of company's House, it it is my freelance business, right? Yeah. kind of renamed it in a group, so I registered that in 2011. I used to go into work at like 6, 7am and do like three hours of what would become Action Rocket and then do my day job at eDialogue.
0: How have you seen the email industry change in that time? Like how, <laughs> how have you seen people respond to the email channel within businesses in that time?
1: Yeah. So I guess the, the big change is, you know, we've had the year of mobile about five times now. Yeah, um, <laughs> So, you know, dead. mobile, yeah. So so mobile, you know, mobile kind of hit around that time. I love the dialogue, I suppose. about so what, 2011, 2012? That was when it became, I remember the last couple of years I was there, the big projects I was working with was making all of the BA emails, British Airways emails, responsive and, and they were one of the first brands to to really embrace it. So yeah, I guess that was around that kind of time. And then, yeah, the sort of early 2010s, there was a bit of like convincing of like, hey, you, th- you should think about mobile. And yeah, that's a given though, right? So uh, yeah, that that kind of approach has definitely changed. People are just super on board with things like that now. And it is just the given way of doing things. In some ways, things haven't changed. It's still about getting a good message in front of people and, and seeing what resonates and ultimately getting people to do an action that you want them to take, right? That's not changed at all. The attitude is interesting because that's changed quite a bit. It used to be that email was... It sounds ridiculous for a platform that is often the highest revenue generating channel for, for a, a brand, but it used to be just given to the intern or like, you know, my first email work was, I was a junior designer in an agency in 2006 and they are like, yeah, can you just do all these emails? It's them for ebookers and Malmaison and people like that. And now this, you know, head of CRM at a massive company is a legitimate, well-paid, well-respected yeah. role. So that has changed. and to some extent that's probably people who started off being juniors when email was a thing that was given to juniors and they've grown with it but also it is a serious tool and people recognize it a lot more it's been interesting sort of mentioned social but there was definitely a kind of well social's the thing now and let's forget about email and then the money did go to social for a bit but people realized that it it's hard to it's hard to do that analytics and and that tracking and to actually tie the conversion even though we just talked about that, that's not necessarily the you know the, the key thing but it, it's, it's harder sometimes to prove the case for investing in social and also I think what happened is you know the, the shiny thing was social and then it settled down and people realized how to make money out of it and how not to make money out of it and then they realized actually that the thing that email does is good and that's and here's how it fits into the overall mix and we're going to really go back to investing in email i, I like brands like um i go, it's in one of my talks but people like pretty little thing pretty yeah yeah they're one of the is it boohoo owns them um
0: yeah uh, well yeah. i don't know if they own them or but yeah they're like yeah. the fast fashion kind of
1: yeah that kind of space right
0: yeah
1: and yeah like I, I really like their emails because they they were a social brand right like they they came pretty much from nothing by selling to influencers and getting influencers involved and building that brand off social. And then you look at their emails and they're obviously very, they recognize that their audience is a social media savvy audience and they pull some of that aesthetic and, and that approach through to their emails, which is a really interesting way to approach email design. And I think it's pretty smart for them because Um, ultimately a brand is a brand, right? Like, so people don't go, right, I'm looking at email now, so I'm happy reading five paragraphs of text compared to Instagram or whatever. Like, that's not how it works.
0: I guess that's one thing that marketers often get distracted by is a new shiny thing. It's like TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, Mm. email, whatever technology or platform it wants to be, just have a tendency to just, the shiny thing is like the blinkers are on and, this is a yeah, new totally. thing that we have to do. And to the detriment mm. of what you were saying is a, a campaign as a campaign and de- actual marketing hasn't really
1: changed that much. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting seeing how we have a new wave of marketers now, right? And probably some of the marketers we've had now have actually studied marketing at university. <laughs> so they they actually come through knowing what to do a bit more, perhaps, you know. But marketing is definitely one of those disciplines where people fall into it because they've studied other things and you know people come to it from various directions and and what's interesting there is you get i think sometimes a bit of uh whether it's conscious or not a sort of imposter syndrome of like i'm doing this and i don't really know what i'm doing but it seems all right and i'm going to get found out at some point that kind of thing and, and i think that can breed to this idea of like i'm just gonna find the shiny thing because obviously that's the thing to do without much kind of critical ability or critical thinking and that's how these things, I think, can can spiral. Yeah, I'm sort of mildly amused about how susceptible marketers are to marketing. <laughs> like, we, we know the tricks. We know when something yeah. is nonsense because we've done it ourselves. Like, we should recognize it and, and be more immune to it, really.
0: I guess that's one thing that's interesting about psychology is that even if you know the tricks, you're still going to fall for them.
1: Oh, totally, yeah.
0: Like stuff like price anchoring. I know mm. exactly what it is, but I'll still be completely affected by it if I see it.
1: Yeah, or uh, you know, a, a one-day fire sale or something like that. I'll be sitting there going, "Oh, I've got to get this," you know. So, and then you visit the next day, and the fire sale is still going. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, I know the game. I know I don't need it, but it's cheaper yeah. than it was, so I'd somehow need it. <laughs> yeah, we're so, all humans, right?
0: Yeah. So, <clears throat> how do you approach leading a business? Because obviously, working within Martech, I guess, yeah. the space is now. Huge, there's that visualization of Martech brands that's gone yeah, from they're... a couple hundred to like
1: thousands. Yeah, like they ended up splitting it out by country in the end. <laughs> <laughs> that thing, yeah, with all the logos on, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, how do you approach being the CEO of this kind of business <laughs> in this kind of industry?
1: Yeah, that's a interesting question. Like, we do, there's, there's maybe a bit of a not imposter syndrome, but like, this isn't something I trained for, right? Like, I didn't go to business school and you kind of learn a lot of things on the job by doing. So I think you have to understand that not everything you do is gonna be perfect or the first time you do it is how you thought it was gonna go and things like that. And you have to kind of come to terms with that. So the kind of structure, I suppose, is Action Rocket has a, a leadership team. So like my time is gets super hectic, especially with two companies and yeah. you know, the way, way the world is at the moment and things like that. So there's a good leadership team that looks after Action Rocket most of the time now to be honest. Like I'm involved in some stuff, but most of my day to day time is on Taxi. And and Taxi as well has a, a leadership team. So there's a CTO and a COO as well. And then we have people look after the finance and, and whatever else. So yeah, I, I guess one, one key learning is understanding what you want to do, what you can do, what you should do and what you're happy with in that mix. And then Making that happen, I think, is is one thing I've learned. It's very tempting, especially when you're the founder, CEO, to want everything done exactly how you would have done it. Yeah. But you can't do that, because the only way to do that is to clone yourself 15 times or 20 times, whatever, right? And that doesn't work either. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Even if it was was legitimately possible, it still wouldn't work, because you don't want 20 of me wandering around. Because, you know, you need diversity of thought and and everything else. But, yeah, so coming to terms with, like, that was done. It was done differently to what I would have done it, but also the thing that we set out to do was done in a way that works. It's just different. And understanding that and being able to live with it, I think is a good skill. Yeah. <laughs> you, you end up having to learn. Uh, yeah.
0: I guess going from this company being your side project to it, mm. something that is almost taken out of your hands because you don't need to run it on a day-to-day basis must be yeah yeah both scary and pretty exciting at the same time yeah
1: and it's ultimately it's how the business grows right because if, if everything has to go through you then it's it's going to be small because it yeah. you, you only have so many hours in the day and things like that so being able to scale in that way and, and make sure that you can give that control to people and you're happy with it but also in a way that is how you think the business should grow is quite hard you have to learn it and you you have to learn that level of trust with people and you know trust is something that's learned you don't just say I trust you now." right <laughs> like, so you have to feel your way through it and sometimes things go wrong and you have to nudge them and work it into a way that it should have gone and, and sometimes things go amazingly well and you haven't had any interaction or you know what you would have done wouldn't have been as good so yeah you learn it as you go along I think yeah <laughs> Really.
0: how have you found working under the new circumstances you know everyone working from home all that kind of stuff mm.
1: i'm going to be one of those people and be like i don't mind it i have i'm really lucky to have my own room in my house that has a little office and it's got everything in like it's it's pretty small and it's got about three rooms worth of stuff in it
0: i'm liking your 90 uh, percent pure potato book that i can see in the background oh
1: yeah oh that's a really good book yeah i have these are all my books that are like so i've been into the studio i like mean we, we do have an office it's got like 30 desks and the kitchen and all the usual stuff it's in Farringdon it costs a huge amount of money yeah so every every so often for insurance really and and you know to make sure it's still there and things I go in and I kind of cycle my books around. but yeah so these are all my books that I'm kind of reading at the moment but 98% pure potato is really good it's about planning and advertising Uh, oh nice and it's yeah there's some some good learnings in that but yeah in in the new world I, I find it really hard the things that people typically say like you know zoom is Is fine, really. It's not the best software in the world, but it's okay. And I don't, that kind of level of interaction is okay. Like, it's probably, you know, it's good to see people in person and have that little chat, having a coffee and things like that. One of the things I've kind of struggled with a little bit in the past is decisions being made in the corridor when you're walking to the loo or something like that. Yeah. Like, and, one upside is this avoids all of that <laughs> um, you know if you're if you need to make a decision with someone you have a call and you agree and it's a meeting you know there mm-hmm. is no oh well you said that while you're making coffee and now I've done it it's like well I said it, it as a thing we should maybe look at not a thing we should do so you avoid that it's hard getting the work life balance right I think you know we have kids and and yeah it, it's good that it's normalized kids wandering into the room and things you know that's that's life so you shouldn't hide from it but it's hard finishing at five sometimes or finishing at five thirty and going and I actually miss my commute, not because of the commutes are a bit universally awful, right? But I like that hour of sitting on a train and just processing what's happened and, and thinking about the day and writing down my actions for the next day and you know, or even just listening to
0: Yeah, it's it's that disconnect between your work life and your home life
1: yeah exactly and then literally walk out the door and the kids are there like and you have to switch completely straight away into into a completely different person you know so I think that's hard and I've been trying to you know my my day does finish at half five and and I have to it's pretty much bath time at that point but I try to get time in the evening to like we live on like a, a development so I go out for a run or go out for a walk around and just get 20 minutes half an hour of just you know time on your own sort of thing
0: yeah I do exactly the same because I think I'll, I'll go crazy if I don't just yeah. have that separation because I'm in my bedroom literally all day. So yeah, I need to at least go for a walk before and after work, usually lunchtime as well, just to be in the right mental state.
1: Yeah, exactly. And even just the, you know, the steps. You do about <laughs> a thousand steps if you don't go out. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's with the Apple Watch over reading everything. So yeah, you've got to go out and, and get a bit of just... Yeah, 20 minutes, half an hour, just go out and breathe some air in and check that the world's still there, really. (laughs) Nothing else. How about socialising? I guess you've been doing,
0: I guess I could call like professional socialising because you've been doing a podcast as well.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, So yeah, podcasts are actually really good. And yeah, this is obviously a podcast. But one thing I've learned as a podcast host, I guess, is you get to have conversations with people. Like, Even if they weren't going out, it just forces you to have a chat with someone for an hour. Like, that, you know, you would have met you know i think everyone that i've spoken to on my podcast i've met at, at conferences and things but you know you see them once a year so it, it just kind of forces you to have that interaction which is really good yeah and then the, the other social stuff like i tried i usually dj on saturdays it's hard keeping the routine but I've, especially weekends because routine flies out the window but yeah. usually i do nine o'clock on a saturday and dj for a couple of hours and do a live stream which has been fun and it's cool because you get that interaction you get people on the chat room and things like that and then the rest of our socializing is kids socializing so like (laughs) you go see other mums and dads really but yeah there's no going to the pub or anything like that but to be honest I kind of I don't know grew out of that I suppose I stopped doing that anyway a while ago you know
0: yeah on the conference thing Mm -hmm. have you been to any of these virtual conferences that have been going on
1: yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's some real pros to it, especially when you look at things like diversity and inclusion. Yeah. I'll, I'll pick on Litmus Conference, but just as a complete example, like it's a great conference. But if you wanted to go there in real time in the real world, it's best part of a grand, right? By the time you bought your ticket and your train to and your, yeah. and your flight and whatever and your hotel and however you want to do it, you know, and, and even if your work pays for it, you've got to have a job that will pay for it. But also you need to... Have the ability to take about a week off. Obviously, I'm exaggerating because I usually go to the one in America, and you, it takes a, you know, conference in America from the UK is a week, right? Yeah, um, we jet lag time and all. Yeah, that kind of thing. yeah, exactly. But so obviously, there's a huge amount of things that you've got to have going for you before you can go to a conference like that. Whereas logging onto a Zoom call, obviously, you've got to have a laptop and and the time and things, but it, it democratizes it a lot more, which I think is really interesting. Not just for audience but for people talking as well, right? It's really hard if you're a freelancer and you, you you can't give up a week's worth of money. It's really hard to be able to, right? And to pay for some of your travel if you have to and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so being able to, to democratise stuff has been really interesting. And it'd be, I think it would be a shame if we just went back to everything's back as it was now. You know, at, at the very least, let's think about how we do physical conferences, but have some kind of online component, but also you know, maybe we should do a mix of online and uh, real life ones, or whatever. They are hard. It's harder to to concentrate, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there there are some challenges with it. And I've done some workshops and things like that, and I found workshops have been really hard as well. Whereas previously you've gone for a day. I both teach workshops and also go on them for various things. We just in a writing course on on our team, and. You have to split it over three or four days. Like you can't do a day's conference or a day's workshop where you would have gone to a place in London and sat behind a desk or whatever. Yeah. Because you can't concentrate for more than half an hour. You know, looking at a screen. It's interesting. I, I like how Litmus did a whole week of it, and and also you had the ability to watch what you wanted.
0: Yeah, it's, it's that video on demand thing where you sign up, but you can still you can consume the content on your own schedule, rather yeah. than being stuck to the conference
1: schedule. Exactly, and and I liked how they had a couple of live things each day and that built that bit of community. There was a Slack channel, there was a chat room where people were watching. So you could speak with other people and watch stuff in real time and you had that kind of social interaction, which is really important because otherwise it's yeah. just like, here's 20 talks, go and deal with it. Yeah, which um, is
0: what I've seen with some conference organisers. It's been very much mm. like just that, here's 20 pre-recorded talks online, off you go. Yeah, yeah. Misses the point entirely.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think the opposite is just trying to replicate a a real life conference online and say, right, here's two days of straight talking. Yeah. You know, that that doesn't necessarily work either. So it's interesting seeing companies adapt. And I think Litmus did it really well when they did their thing. Yeah, as I said, it'd be a shame if we went straight back to just what it was because that's how the world was.
0: If people haven't learned anything from this, I think they've been like, they've Mm. had their head in the sand because. I mean, working at some of the companies I've worked at, I know that some of the management teams were desperate to get back into the office. They couldn't understand that employees could be happy and productive working from home. Yeah. Like, obviously some people want to be in the office and that's great. And some others want to Mm. be at home and others still want to find whatever split works for them.
1: Yeah, we, we found that for our team, it's been really interesting. I guess of the, you know, even of the leadership team, other people on the leadership team are like, this is really hard for me. I need to be back in the office. Yeah. So obviously you have to work on that and work out how everyone can be happy and things. But also, yeah, there are people who, as I said, I'm really lucky to have an office where I can close the door and get on with my work. If I was working at the kitchen table all day and the kids were running around, I would be, you know, not doing my job, you know. And I absolutely see the value when it's safe in being able to say, here's some space for you to work at and things like that. And that's key. I think it's interesting seeing some companies, and we didn't do this, but like we actually managed to transition to everyone working remotely pretty well. Obviously, there's a bit of teething and working out people how people get on and providing support for them and things like that. But I heard about companies doing things like everyone's on an eight-hour Zoom call every day. And <laughs> if you're not at your desk, your manager looks at your camera and says, where are you? Yeah and i I think the best one i heard was there's a memo saying you're not allowed to put the washing machine on between nine (laughs) and five or whatever i could imagine if you're running a virtual call center or something then maybe you know but if if you're hiring good people to and you trust them to get on with their job then you don't do stuff like that
0: no (laughs) and there's there's that whole rise of software that tracks people at home and often on their own devices which is this big mess. um fortunately I've not worked in an environment where that is a thing. but yeah like that's crazy as well.
1: yeah it's it's very hard. <laughs> one thing we've done with our team that I thought has been really good is we hired a external I don't know what you'd call them almost like a therapist I suppose like a mental health wellness person. so there's a person you can book an hour with them and just talk about anything really you know how you're feeling but also how you're getting on what you can do to improve how you, if you just need to get something your chest all that kind of stuff and that's been really good for the team some people are like i don't need it i don't like it whatever that's fine you know others are like this is the best perk i've ever had but just providing that has been really good and also we've been trying to do a bit of learning as well we started off doing the kind of standard like we're going to do vir- virtual yoga or whatever <laughs> and you know and it turned quickly into actually this yoga videos online. We don't need to do a team yoga session or whatever. Yeah. You know, people just kind of drifted away from it. But but yeah, providing that kind of stuff and giving people other things to think about. As I said, we did a writing course recently. We've been doing some other things that are aligned with what we want to do as a business, but also not everyday tasks. Just things that just help people keep keep thinking about other stuff, I suppose. Yeah.
0: I guess that's kind of challenging when you're at your kitchen table or if you're lucky, yeah. you've are got a desk at home. So it's, yeah, like finding something to think about because it can be very yeah, yeah. draining and very distracting being at home.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, bouncing, that's been fun. But yeah, I couldn't I agree.
0: Earlier you said you you do seminars. Yes. I know that you, you teach HTML coding. How mm. has that been during lockdown?
1: It's been interesting because so pre-lockdown it was – a great session you'd go and do a day's worth of training it's in a place called wallace space which is a big building full of really nice meeting rooms and all the treats you could possibly want and a nice healthy meal at lunch and you know really great learning environment and you'd go there for a day and people would have sort of five ten people on these courses and we go through building out an html usually building out some shapes in html some kind of modular layout and talking about all the pitfalls in email and all that kind of stuff so again that's one of the things where it is at the moment so yeah pre-covid we do those as like day sessions but also i do them as sessions for teams so i did one for well, it's probably nda's but a, a holiday place where you go and stay for a week and it's not butlin's it's the other one but anyway <laughs> um yeah did a session with them and, and we split it over two or three days and it works really well doing it online i think you, you have to take more breaks so you had to review like you know here's all the things we talk about and how do we split it into 45 minute chunks rather than hour and a half chunks and put in a few more breaks and you know stages for people to just get a bit of fresh air it's harder to build that rapport with people i think as well so you have to be really conscious about asking people questions and making sure that they're around and and that kind of thing making sure people are still engaged keeping that engagement that you know it's been good but it's a learning curve you know and again it's a bit like a conference just taking that and shoving it online doesn't work
0: I've been working with a few people who've been taking courses, and they've said some have adapted really well and have changed the way they teach to suit this. Yeah, we're working, and others just yeah. haven't quite got it yet. Yeah, um, and it's really evident, and it just makes the whole course significantly harder to follow.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, there's some really easy wins, like two screens is great because yeah. you have all your Zoom stuff on one, you can see everyone, and you can share the other screen. There's also great tools out there, so Google um, in Google's uh, G Suite. Whatever they call it now, there's a, a tool you don't really see, but it's called Jamboard. Have you seen that? I recall the old product
0: because there used yeah. to be a thing called Jamboard, and I think they bought it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, they bought it, and it's kind yeah. of it's in G Suite somewhere, but you you don't really see it until you're poking around. But yeah, that's really good. It's like a virtual whiteboard sort of thing. People can put yeah. their post-it notes in and fiddle around with stuff and draw nice pictures and things. That's really cool. And then there's things like Miro as well. Yeah, we use Miro at work. Like again, virtual whiteboard. Yeah like things like that just make it give a bit more interaction and, and help people follow along and contribute as well. So yeah, designing that kind of stuff into into a course is, is really useful.
0: I think as a final question, what do you think mm. is the most exciting thing happening in email right now? And if I can follow on with another one, what is the most exciting thing that is happening in the future? Where do you see things going?
1: Uh, yeah interesting um so i i guess the stock answers are things like amp and that kind of stuff right like the, the technologies we know about i've been in email long enough to see shiny things come and go and I, I kind of remain a little bit to be convinced with things like amp but nevertheless if it's good it's good and yeah if it grows then it, I'm, I'm up for it um yeah i'm interested in this idea of workflow and helping teams work better, I think there's a real that's probably the next big revolution. Like we've got to the point where we know how to code for email and we know how design should look and what good content is and what converts and things like that. But being able to build a team that does it really effectively in a really smart way, I think we're not there yet. And being able to facilitate that, I think is is where the next kind of wave is. And really that's what buys you the the time. To do the cool stuff as well, things like AMP and you know whatever guys like phrasey doing AI subject lines and you know all great things. Really interested in it. it. Marketers need to have the time to actually take advantage of it properly, right? And it's yeah, you know, it's not the thing where you think oh five minutes I will just press a button and it's done. You've got to really get your head around it and work out how to do it well with all of these things. So yeah, I, I, I'm interested in that, and I think the thing that's interesting there is that the way we make email right now probably isn't the best way. So it's It's not necessarily a case of just improve the current process. It's maybe what is the better process. There's a lot of movement around things like email design systems, which we've had master templates for years, right? But how do we make them happen in a really smart way? That stuff is cool. Yeah, in terms of now versus the future, it kind of depends where you are as a brand. Some people are there right now. Some people are just starting. So, you know, it's different for everyone. I think in the future, it's interesting like email's had a place for the last 10-15 years in terms of a marketing channel i think it's still going to have a place in 5-10 years time but what that place will be is interesting we've seen this idea of business chit chat is in things like slack now and that's great because uh, <laughs> anyone who worked in an office 10-15 years ago you know <laughs> my, my favorite example of that is i, I worked somewhere and and the office manager she would send these <laughs> almost deranged emails <laughs> about like you know remember you should only have one piece of fruit from the fruit bowl end of message to the whole company I'm glad that that stuff is in slack now my favorite one you can bleep this out or cut it or whatever but <laughs> and it's a language thing but she said was a man servicing the ladies for the next 15 minutes end of message <laughs> and I mean she she meant the ladies' toilet right but <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah um yeah so i'm glad that that kind of business stuff is is moved you know to a better place really but what does that mean for the inbox you know does that mean that people are spending less time does it mean that when people spend time in their inbox they've got better expectations of what's actually going to happen you know mobile has seen that people go from checking their email once or twice a day to having it in their pocket and checking it every two minutes so that's great for us but with that mindset means more distracted mindset and, and less time concentrating on email so they might check it every two minutes but they'll only give us two seconds so seeing how that plays out really i think you know how's the channel used and, and what people doing in email will it just become a channel that is purely for interactions with brands and marketing like on, on the one hand that might mean that people go to it less but also on the other hand if that's what people's expectations of email they'll be less annoyed about stuff that isn't isn't you know uh, great
0: i guess we've kind of seen that start to play out with the promotions tab. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And actually that hasn't dropped, well, we've not seen a significant drop in interaction with commercial email.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's on us as marketers to get our heads around it, right?
0: Well, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate you speaking with me. Great. Yeah.